0: Hi, everyone. It's Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. I'm pleased to welcome you to a bonus episode of the Little Brown School and Library podcast. We recently got to hear Samira Ahmed, author of *Interment*, Speak at the School Library Journal Teen Live event, and we're pleased to bring you her remarks today. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning,
1: everyone. I'm Samira Ahmed, the author of Internment, and it's such a pleasure to be with you this morning. And I wanted to thank School Library Journal for giving me this great opportunity to speak with you. Um, Before I get into my talk, I wanted to just take a moment to acknowledge the passing of the incredible legend Toni Morrison and share just a few of her words that have always resonated with me and I think really speak so much to what we are talking about today. She said, if you are free, You need to free somebody else. If you have some power, then your job is to empower somebody else. And I just think that's a great, um, great entry point to our discussion today um, on today's theme, which is knocking down doors. Um, And I love this conference theme because it's so much about putting words into action. And, you know, I was a former high school English teacher. I taught high school for seven years. And I was in a lot of meetings where we made plans and we discussed and we talked. Um, but I always really wanted to figure out, OK, now, how do we turn theory into practice? How do we take it the next step? And so that's why I love um, this theme of knocking down doors. Um, because it's saying, hey, we've talked, we've discussed. And now it's time for us to make good on our promises. Now it's time for us um, to break down some walls. Um, so. I think we all know that reading is not a passive act. You know, at its best, and what is so powerful about it is that reading is about engaging with the world beyond the page. It's about challenging that world, and in many ways, you know, being inspired to change it, to be better. And, you know, if you've been at any recent conferences where um, you've seen internment, you've probably seen like my wonderful, the wonderful um, little brown school and library team out there wearing a read to resist um, hat or a pin. And you've probably seen me tweeting with that hashtag when I talk about internment. So you can understand that this idea of um, knocking down doors and being an active, engaged reader really aligns with both my goals as a former teacher and also now as a writer for young people. So I'd like to address this theme of knocking down doors in two ways. First, I'd like to talk about what that means to me personally. Um, What does it mean to knock down doors, to break down walls, and what does it mean, what does it feel like to have doors slammed in your face? Because those experiences that I've had with that are obviously experiences that so many of our students and, and young people have had and, and are probably having, you know, on this very day. And I think it's important to consider that when we imagine how those experiences can shape um, a child's world. And second, I'd like to speak a little bit more broadly about that idea, this topic of knocking down doors, because I want to challenge you um, to not merely break down doors. I mean, that is obviously critically important, but also. I want you to think about and challenge you to tear down walls and to build schools and libraries and a nation that really opens its doors to all our children. So what does knocking down doors mean to me? Well, I first conceived of the idea of internment in around 2015, and there was always one image that I wanted to have in there at the very beginning. And that has stayed through um, with me through every draft. And internment begins on kind of this beautiful evening. And you can kind of imagine, it's just like this lovely, you know, night falling moment where my main character, a young girl named Layla is, you know, racing um, across town, hurrying to meet her boyfriend, as you could imagine, you know, any senior in high school might be doing. And, you know, as she's passing, Um, Through town, she hears that familiar sound, you know, this familiar sounds of crickets chirping and a car in the distance and and the rustle of leaves as, you know, she's sort of going across this kind of idyllic, perfectly manicured lawn of her town's center square, um, you know, that has a little gazebo with twinkling lights on it. But then there in the distance, she sees a funnel of smoke rising into the air. And that smoke is from the town's book burning. And you can almost smell that, can't you? You can see that gray smoke. You can imagine the embers. And I'm guessing the idea of burning books makes you shudder. And it should. It should make all of us shudder. And, um, you know, I started in tournament with that image because it is shocking. Because it's not just a bonfire that Layla's fellow citizens are at where they're oh getting rid of you know old papers and recycling things or burning things that are you know scraps of, of paper scratch paper that's unwanted. what they're really burning what those ashes really represent is democracy. The burning of our democracy is what is shown when we when I began um internment with a book burning. And for Layla and her family, you know, even before um, you know, they're rounded up and thrown into a camp for Muslim Americans, a door has been slammed in her face. And what is that door? That door is the gateway, the portal to her freedom. It is the, the entry to her rights as an American and as a human being. And the government that shut the door and tried to throw away the key, and those fellow citizens who were burning books and who built those barbed wire fences to pen her in, what they were saying to her is this. This nation of the people, by the people, for the people, this nation is not for you. This is not your home. You're not one of us. This is a door that is closed to you. You know, Layla is a character that I made up, but her story isn't fictional. That fear-mongering that she feels, the hatred that she faces from her fellow Americans, from elected officials, from those who swore to uphold democracy and our Constitution, those experiences are very much real. And there are tens of thousands of kids in America who are about to walk into school and into your libraries who face that hatred and that sense of exclusion every single day who every day are made to feel like they don't belong, like they're not good enough, like the fantasy of the American dream is one that they're not even allowed to aspire to. Um, so now I'm gonna share a few personal experiences um, that I've had with Islamophobia. And just a quick content warning, there will be um, swear words in racist language um, because it's really, in my experience, been that you know a person who is on the receiving end of um, racism and bigotry Um, hears it in flowery words. So it was the summer of 1980 and America was gripped by the months-long Iran hostage crisis. I was around eight years old and I was spending the day in Chicago with my parents and it's one of those days, it's one of those moments that's really like crystallized in my mind. You know how sometimes you have memories and it's almost just like this perfect photo um, in your mind and that was what part of that day was like for me. And so I remember that it was really hot and I remember the sky was perfectly blue, you know, like one of those really cloudless um, deep blue skies. And I remember being in bumper-to-bumper traffic on Michigan Avenue, which is one of the, you know, one of the biggest streets in in the city. And I remember rolling down my window and it was like in the age of rolling down windows like that. And I saw a car to my left, roll up next to me, and the window, the passenger window of the front seat was perfectly aligned with, with my window in the back seat of my car. And I very distinctly remember this man with this like very angry red face, this white man who pointed this thick accusatory finger at me through his roll-down window, me, a kid, and yelled, go home, you goddamn fucking Iranian. And then I remember him and the driver turning to each other and laughing, and then pulling up in in traffic. Now the next minutes are a little are a little bit of a blur. I, I mean, I'm sure my parents said something to me, but I can't exactly remember the words. But there are two things that I remember thinking clear as a bell, because I did that thing that all you know kids do when they're confronted with something terrible and unknown. They try to make sense of their world, right? They want that thing to fit into some rules that they can understand. And you know, at first I was really confused and I remember thinking so distinctly like, wow, how do these guys know that I don't live in Chicago? How do they know that my home is really in the suburbs? That's weird. Um, Is there something on a car that's giving that away? and Then the second thing I had was this thought, and that's really been a thought that stayed with me and in many ways has been kind of the defining idea for me, which is that racists are really bad at geography because I was Indian and we had Iranian-American friends and how could these people not understand the difference, like had they not seen a map? And, you know, that might have been my first overt experience with bigots, but it was certainly not my last and so many of those experiences have always had a central theme of go home. During the first Persian Gulf War my hometown made it to the state basketball championships and this was like a really big deal and I remember leaving the game with my dad and little sister and it was down at a university and we were walking to the parking lot and the parking lot had mostly emptied by then so it was pretty dark out and um, the parking lot was empty, and we were walking to our car parked way in the back. And then from behind us, I heard a sort of a screech and a turn of a car, and then I hear it gun it. The car guns it towards us, and it swerved away just at the last minute before it was going to hit us. And a passenger threw a beer can out the window and yelled, Go home, fucking terrorists. The Oklahoma City bombing. Before they arrested and charged Timothy McVeigh they held a person of interest. And I think a lot of folks don't remember this, but I obviously do because that person of interest had the same last name as me, Ahmed. And that was a time of landlines and phone books. And I was listed in the phone book. And as you can imagine, Ahmed is not that hard to find because it's right up there up front. And my phone started ringing off the hook starting at around 10 p.m. And the first call I picked up was, I had a voice on the end that just said this, go blow up your own country raghead. So I'm sure you're detecting a familiar pattern here. You know, on 9-11, I lived in New York City, and I saw the clouds of black smoke rising into the cerulean blue skies, and I mourned with my fellow New Yorkers. And a couple days later, I was leaving a memorial service at the 96th Street Mosque, and my head was covered in a prayer scarf, and I was wearing an American flag pin, because I think every... Muslim, I knew in New York, was wearing an American flag pin like it was had some kind of superpower, like democracy was a shield. And two young men, I think they were teenagers, began following me down the avenue. Now, it was, you know, the middle of the afternoon, it was, you know, bright sunlight, dozens and dozens of people around, and they started yelling at me, America doesn't want you, go home, you fucking terrorists. Now, those are just some incidents that I have experienced with this idea of go home. And the thing is really, in the scheme of things, they're kind of small. Like, you know, no big deal, right? Yes, I got called names. Who doesn't get called names? I walked away from all of that, you know, relatively unscathed, I wasn't physically hurt. And, you know, the thing is though, that is, it's no different than what literally thousands of other kids in America have probably heard today, have probably seen tweeted at them today. And so when we think about it in those bigger terms, it is a big deal. And what those kids are hearing is just so deeply damaging and just so wrong. And you know, the thing is, I believe so much that in the United States of America, no child should have to hear someone yelling at them or tweeting at them to go home because they are home. And in our country, there are no others. There should only be an us. And that's why I write, because it's my job to speak the truth. And as an adult in this country, with the power and privilege to craft narratives and to tell stories, I think it's my responsibility to use my voice to break down barriers, to knock down those doors, to build bridges to join us together, not walls that keep kids out. You know, if democracy is our nation's home, then I'm going to do my best to make sure that door is open to every one of our children and to let them know that they all belong here, that this is their home too. And today I'm asking you to help me do that because libraries are the beating heart of our democracy. And I want to share one experience I had as a high school teacher that I think just beautifully illustrates that. Um, I was teaching American literature, which is the first unit I. Um, w- I was teaching American literature, and the first unit I almost always taught was a unit entitled "What is an American?" And I asked my students to bring in an object that defined America for them. What is an American? What defines Americanness for you? And I remember I had one 16-year-old student whose family were refugees. And he brought in his library card. And, you know, he walks to the front of the classroom and he reaches into his back pocket and he pulls out this library card. And I see the looks on the other kids' faces. And it's an honors class. So, you know, the kids are, some of the kids are like really extra and going, <laughs> you know, they're bringing these incredible, you know, family heirlooms and souvenirs and, you know, doing other presentations, to, I, I mean, other things to go with it. And I could see some of them looking like, man, this is a cop out. And then I heard another kid whisper, to, to a different student. Man, everybody has a library card. And then this young man started to tell us his story. As refugees, he and his family have lived you know, in many different countries and you know, in various kinds of places in transient housing and shelters and in the homes of strangers. And when his family finally settled in their home in the United States, one of the very first things that his parents took him to do was to go to the public library and get a library card. In America, he explained his mother had told him that you can go to the library and check out any book you want. I mean, like this was magic. And he just said a library card is like carrying freedom in your pocket. And hearing my students speak about that so eloquently and just so simply in a way about libraries and what they really are and what they really mean crystallized something for me that maybe I had started to take for granted, you know, because everyone has a library card, right? Libraries are so much more than buildings that house books, right? You know, as obviously all the librarians out there know, libraries represent a free exchange of ideas ideas that dates back to Alexandria in the 3rd century BCE. I mean, this is part of the human experience for centuries. And libraries, you know, archive human experiences, but they also give life to them. They connect people with communities and open doors to the unknown and libraries provide mirrors for so many kids who are trying to figure out who they are in a country that tells them so many of them, that they don't belong here. A library can be home where they can find themselves, just like I did. You know, For me as a kid, and for so many kids, a library door that reads, enter here, means so much more than just like, this is the doorway that you walk through. It's saying that yes, this is a country of the people, by the people, and for the people, and it's your home too. You are the people. So now this is the part where I'm going to ask us to be a little uncomfortable because I'm going to ask us to think about ourselves and about our libraries and about our schools and what it really means for our libraries to have that door that reads enter here. You know I want us to pause and think about our privilege and how we view the world, how that privilege changes how we view the world. And recognizing privilege can sometimes be difficult. I mean, it's not always a comfortable conversation, but I know that for myself, I think it's important to recognize my privilege despite me having marginalizations. I mean, obviously I'm an Indian American from an immigrant family, I'm Muslim, and yet I I have many, many privileges that others do not. And I never want to let myself forget that because recognizing your privilege also means realizing your real power and I'm asking you to use your privilege and your power for a purpose. You know, that's how Layla was able to fight back in internment. She used what little power she had and called on others to use the privileges they had to make a change because she knew that real change, that revolutions happen when people recognize their power. And librarians are on the front lines every single day fighting for our freedoms, you know for the rights of children to grow up in a world where their stories are valued and their voices are lifted up and not stifled. You know librarians are curators of our culture and of our democracy. And you know every librarian out there knows that every day we see doors slam in kids faces in marginalized countries across in in marginalized communities um, across the country. But every librarian also knows that a great nation opens doors of opportunities, and it doesn't lock them and bar them from entry, because a library is for everyone. So here's my first challenge. I'm going to ask you to question the cultural hegemony. Think about what is the default, like what is considered normative. Think about how we all know the importance of diversifying shelves, and we could all speak about how we do need diverse books. But then think also about the summer reading lists we sent home with our kids. in virtually every school in America and how that does not reflect our value that our shelves should reflect our world. I want you to think about what it means when communities seek to challenge or ban a book like The Hate You Give because of the F-bombs in that book. And yet at the same time, many of those same schools have Huck Finn on their curriculum and they explain away the use of the N-word as historically appropriate because Huck Finn is a classic. And I want to think, I want to ask you to think about your role as helping people understand what is so deeply wrong with that line of thinking. You know, I was doing a school presentation once and I shared some similar experiences with Islamophobia that I shared with you today. And because I was a teacher, I always talk to the teachers um, or administrators beforehand and tell them, listen, I'm going to share this experience. There are going to be some swear words. And every school and library that I've spoken with has been fine with that except one. And this was a school that was about 80% white. And the, the teachers who were in charge said to me, well, we prefer that our students not hear language, like the F word. And so I just asked them one question in response. And I said, is Hawk Finn required reading in your curriculum? And the answer was yes. And my follow up question was, so this school believes that somehow the N word is okay, but that the F word is like too much, is like totally inappropriate. A heinous racial slur, okay. The F word when used in the context of the experience of some of these characters is beyond the pale. So that ended up being a rhetorical question because they had no answer. To that question but I think we all know what the answer really is. So look I know so many of you are working hard already and and pushing back when you get challenged and what I'm asking you to do is push back a little harder. I'm asking you to have those uncomfortable conversations with parents and administrators and school board members and community members and challenge them to question the cultural hegemony you know, where the white experience is the default, where that is the experience that shapes the worldview, where the comfort of white students and their parents is valued more than the comfort and experience and even safety of our brown and black kids in our schools and communities. So here's my next challenge. Disrupt the exclusionary status quo. Because we all know there's a danger in the single story, right? And this whole whole theme of our conference today is about knocking down doors. You know, I said earlier that I taught American Lit and my first unit was what is an American. And another assignment that I used to give was this really simple one and just starting the school year with this question of what is an American and asking my students to bring in a photo, a picture from a magazine, newspaper, whatever they had of what an American looks like. What does an American look like? And look, in my deep heart, it was my hope that every one of my students was just going to simply bring in their own photograph, like, you know, their their picture, their school picture from last year. Um, Not a single kid did that. Instead, I was teaching, you know, at two diverse schools at Niles North High School in Skokie, Illinois, and then later in New York City public schools where not a single one of my students was white. And yet over 90 percent of the kids brought in photos of white models, the vast majority of them blonde. And I mean, I was kind of blown away by that, but I guess I probably shouldn't have been because I was thinking again about how their worldview is shaped and what is considered normative and what is considered American. And you know, Einstein said this thing, imagination is more important than knowledge. And when I was a kid, I would see this on my classroom like posters. A lot of times teachers had it up and I never really got that. Um, But finally, as an adult, it started to really sink in because when you can imagine yourself or your world as something more or better, something that includes you, that's like the first step in creating that better world, and creating that world that is inclusive and that isn't shutting people out. And that's why I believe so much that every kid needs to see themselves as a hero on the page. And that doesn't just serve marginalized kids. It doesn't just serve kids from othered backgrounds. It serves all kids, because every kid should see the world reflected on our bookshelves. It opens doors for everyone to view the world in that way. And you know, racism and bigotry is now more overt than I have ever seen in my life, and I really don't think I've ever seen this kind of public expression of anti-blackness and somehow like warm welcoming of white supremacy and neo-Nazis. You know, and I am just so saddened, but also deeply enraged at how we have rolled back progress in, you know, our fight for equity and inclusion and, you know, the rights of like the LGBTQ community community. But I think we can also do something about it and I think we must. So as you are building your collections, you know, consider the diverse stories that you are choosing. Are they written from a person of that background? Do they represent stereotypes? Are all the stories, for example, with LGBTQ characters only coming out stories? Are the stories of black and brown kids only stories of oppression and pain? Are the stories with disabled characters only inspiration porn? Are the diverse stories? on your shelves, simply white savior narratives, are, they're stories that are labeled controversial just because of the human being that is the center of that narrative. Because consider for a moment what it means when all around you on TV and Twitter, and even on the shelves of your library, kids can mostly see themselves only painted as, you know, terrorists, thugs, cockroaches, criminals, someone who is not believed, someone who needs saving. Picture only seeing yourself represented in that way and how terrible that must be. And imagine, too, what it means for the kids who aren't from marginalized backgrounds to hear those words and to have stereotypes reinforced because that is what makes people believe that there really is an other. That's what makes people think that the us is separate from them. And I want us to... push back on that because that is so wrong in every single way and I know there's a lot of good folks out there librarians and teachers who are working um, you know who on disrupt text and questioning the canon and challenging the single narrative and I'm asking all of you to step up and join those efforts in your schools and libraries and your communities as you build your collections and and as you build your curriculum and finally for my third challenge today I'm gonna simply ask this don't be a bystander, be an upstander. You know, I said this earlier, I really meant it. So many of you are already doing this incredible and hard work of changing our communities. And I am asking you to do more. And I Because I don't feel like it's an exaggeration to say that libraries have the power to help rebuild our democracy and shift our worldviews. So yeah, I am asking you to do more and I hope you can take that with as meaning that i have such a belief in our schools and libraries and in you to make those positive changes. So with this last challenge what i'm basically saying is raise your voices even louder. To not be silently complicit, to break down those walls and knock down those doors every time someone tries to build them to keep our kids out. You know, i write books about the danger of silent complicity. About how Fear-mongering and hate and authoritarianism succeeds when good people are silent. And I'm saying we cannot be silent. I'm asking you to extend yourselves. I'm asking you to be the bystander who steps out of their comfort zone to become an upstander. To help that kid and that person who is in a far worse position than you. To be an upstander means to be informed and active and to be willing to be uncomfortable so you can use your privilege and extend that privilege to dismantle the very system that thinks that some people deserve that privilege just because of the color of their skin. An upstander lifts student voices and will help them read and write and think and investigate critically so that they themselves can speak up against a system that is trying to hold them down and locking doors to opportunity and privilege. So yeah, I'm asking you to be a little uncomfortable. I'm asking you to imagine for a moment what it must be like to be the other, the kid whose american is always questioned, the kid whose parents are terrified he's not coming home because he's black and wearing a hoodie and wants to buy some Skittles. And imagine that middle grader who's bullied just because of the person they have a crush on. I'm asking you to examine the role we adults play in creating this unfair world for our children. I'm asking you to live in the discomfort of realizing your privilege and of how you've benefited from various institutionalisms. I mean, I have too. Like, totally uh, truthfully, I have benefited from those too. And living with the discomfort and then trying to change it is so important because. That is going to be the thing that helps our kids to simply live their lives, to be kids, to be known and loved, and to be the heroes of their own story. And like I said, I know so many of you are doing this already. And yes, I am asking you to do more. And a lot of ways, it's unfair because our libraries today are offering even more services than they ever had. Our teachers are being, you know, asked to do so much more than simply teach a subject. And already a lot of you are overtaxed. You're out there fighting the good fight, but I'm issuing these challenges in good faith and from a very deep well of hope because I believe that you are all in the position and have the power to affect positive change in our communities and our nation. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I was the only Indian and Muslim in my entire town. And um, my library was really a refuge for me. It helped me find answers to my questions. And those questions, those answers led me to more questions and so on and so forth on this winding journey that is kind of still with me. You know, when you enter a library, you enter a shared civic space. You're engaging in a social contract with every member of your community and libraries are a gateway and cornerstone to our democracy. And my library taught me that art matters that words matter, and that there was a place for my story on America's Bookshelf. And I think we need to make sure that there's a place for every kid's story on America's Bookshelf. Thank you so much.
0: Hello, it's Victoria Stapleton from LBYR again. We hope you found Samira Ahmed's remarks at the SLJ Teen Live broadcast useful and helpful to your classrooms and communities we leave you now with a sample from the audiobook of her novel internment more information as well as buy links are available in the show notes we'll see you next time
1: i strain to listen for boots on the pavement stomping marching
0: but there's nothing
1: only the familiar chirp of the crickets and the occasional fading rumble of a car in the distance and a rustle so faint I can't tell if it's the wind or the anxious huff of my breath.